Hey there, and welcome to the 680 News Podcast. I'm your host, John Mace. On this weekly program, we take a look at some of the week's biggest stories, offer you an inside look at our operations here downtown Toronto, and we try and have a bit of fun. Thanks so much for tuning in. Part 2 today, a day in the life of a Toronto Police Sergeant. We'll pick up where we left off last week with Lana Kelly, one of our writers who got a chance to ride along for a few shifts. The last call of the night, they're getting ready to wind down and they get this radio call that a female's finger had been bitten off essentially by her boyfriend. Colin Robertson will bring us part two where, among other things, we'll delve into how our officers cope with calls involving mental health issues. And drivers on the East Gardner this week be like, But it's my job to tell you, we're not out of the woods yet. Hold on a second here now. My eyes are just almost beginning to roll into the back of my head. You've just finished rehabilitation. Are you telling me you've got a major project looming on the horizon again? Daryl Dahmer gets the answers from the brains behind the project. Could be a major overhaul beginning next year. The details you need coming up, but first... We catch up with Alana Kelly, one of our digital content writers who spent a few nights with Sergeant Barrera of the Toronto Police Services. Back to where we left off last week, here's Colin Robertson. So... You're, you were with uh, 14 Division. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any reason why you chose that one? Okay, so when I originally reached out to um, Toronto Police to do this story, I was dealing with Pugash, and he specifically chose 14 Division. So that was not... I didn't have too, too much of a say in that. And, you know, looking at all the divisions, 14 Division, I think, gave me a good insight to a mix of everything. Uh, 51 and 52 would have been pretty interesting as well um, because they are so high volume calls, but they deal with a lot of downtown core issues, which was interesting with 14 division. We got some community areas, you get the rooming houses, you get a little bit of downtown. Did, did Sergeant Burr go over the like day in the life of being a police officer with you? Like him, like breaking it down for me? Yeah, like, you know, he wakes up and, uh, you know, he comes to work and he goes through the the usual. Well, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, um, I think a lot of that was he showed me when I was with him. But the one thing that I found interesting about, you know, the day in the life of a Toronto police officer is you can't really plan for anything. And he said this one thing to me, him being a sergeant, is, you know, he'll come in and every single incident that happens or every single call they go to, he relives them in his head and he goes over it over and over again to make sure that they did everything or did the best thing they could or that his men were safe. Um, you know, he said some guys do have routines where they come in and they put their music on and they get ready. Uh, typically for most Toronto police officers that I had met or talked to, their shifts are always changing. So sometimes they work day shifts, sometimes they work afternoons, sometimes they work nights. Um, most of them, I believe it was seven days on, four days off. But in those days off, they might have to do court appearances or extra paperwork. Um, And a lot of them worked overtime. Like the one that we were on, um, I was with the overnight crew. So we started, oh, geez, I don't even remember now. I think we started around 7 p.m. and went till 6 a.m. And, you know, the last call of the night, they're getting ready to wind down and they get this radio call that a female's finger had been bitten off essentially by her boyfriend. And they have half an hour left in their shift, and these guys are tired. This was the same night as um, the domestic assault at the beginning of the night where they had to fight that man. And this is the last call of the night. It comes through, and, you know, a couple of the guys, it was really interesting. They were having – one of them had a wrist injury because of the fight from the beginning of the night. And he didn't, you know, say too, too much about it until the end of the night. Barrera noticed that he was feeling a bit off, and Barrera said, you know, we should get that checked out and paperwork. 
But so they're sitting there, they're getting ready to unwind, and then they get this call, and they have to go at, you know, 6.30 in the morning. The sun's just coming up. They show up at this condo, and the woman is at the hospital, and they can't even get into the unit because the man that is allegedly inside that bit his girlfriend's finger off isn't answering the door. So she's at the hospital. Um, she's not wanting to press charges, but they obviously still have to go through with it because there's been a you know a, a assault here, and they have to wait to get a court order approval. So essentially, for the rest half an hour, they have to wait and almost stage outside of this guy's place until he either decides to come out or they get the court-approved warrant to break in and arrest the guy. And then they had to wait until the end of their shift, and the other guys are at the hospital with the woman, um, making sure she's okay and talking to her and seeing if she wants to press charges. Did you stay around for that the the ending of that incident? Um, well, the thing is, is I was with them, and then you know the sergeant was like, "Okay, his shift was wrapping up, and so he had to go back and try to put through that court order." So I went with him. Um, and what my understanding was was that once the next crew comes in, they take over that. And that was actually another interesting point that Barrera said was really difficult about the job was that um, sometimes they don't get to see what happens. So they, they're working with these people all day for their shift or they're, you know, intimately dealing with this person. And then all of a sudden their shift is done and they have to hand it over to the next crew and they might be off for four days and they don't get to see what actually happened. What is Sergeant Brera like as a person? <laughs> You know, when I first met him, um, I could tell he was very much like, what is this girl going to say about me? What is she going to write about me? Um, a little apprehensive, but super friendly, very nice. And, you know, he, he you could tell he had a lot of wisdom about him and he had been on the job for so long. Um, and one of the things that I couldn't really put into writing was how much the other police officers respected him. Um, and he had this very calm, kind of cool, collected demeanor about himself, which, as he described to me, has come from, you know, his 14-some-odd years working as a Toronto police officer. And the really unique thing about Sergeant Barrera is that he grew up in 14 Division, and, you know, the quote he gave me, to him it was coming back home. Coming back home to 14 Division and being able to be a police officer in the place that he grew up um, and yeah, like the, it was a very interesting dynamic between him and his crew because he had just started as sergeant. Um, he previously worked at Guns and Gangs, and this position opened up, or you know, they asked for him. And you could tell a lot of the officers were trying to, you know, they'd come up to him and they'd say, "Okay, sergeant, this is what we're doing. We've done this. We've done this. We've done this." And he'd be like, "Okay, I trust you guys." And he had this very interesting, like you could tell his crew was always trying to impress him. Um, and he trusted them. And he was like, I trust you guys. Like, you got it. I'm here to support. And everyone had this really interesting respect level for him. Just shifting focus a little bit uh, mm -hmm. back to the things that you encountered. Mm -hmm. You also attended another incident a little bit later on, or it might have been on a different day. Mm -hmm. But a woman who had had mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me about about that incident and how the Toronto Police Force handled it. Yeah, so um, we this is actually my first ride along with them. I get in the car. Ten minutes later, there's this woman piercing screaming. I mean, as if it was in a, like a scary movie. The scream was so loud over the radio, and Barrera kind of just turned it down and put his sirens on and said, all right, I'm going to go see what's going on here. Let's go check it out. We show up, and there's uh, four officers there, 
And each one of them is holding one of the limbs down of the woman not to hurt her because if she's resisting and she's kind of pushing against them this way, um, they can hold her down without applying too much force. And it's, as Barrera explained to me, the best way um, to get her from like hurting herself or them. So we showed up and it was really interesting to see because you, you look up at all the condos uh, right at Spadina and Queen's Key there. It's like a, I think it was during the week, maybe eight o'clock at night on like a Thursday. And all these people have their blinds open and they're peeking out looking because this woman is just screaming. And it was really interesting because one minute she's screaming and then the next minute she's looking at these guys laughing and saying she loves them. And, you know, as Barrera told me, a lot of the times they do have to deal with people that have mental health. And, you know, he didn't say that there was no golden rule that um, to deal with these incidents and every officer deals with them differently. And it was interesting because this woman was, you know, yelling and screaming and then saying she loved them and then spitting on them and kicking in them and trying to bite them one minute and going back and forth. And I asked him, I said, okay, like, how do, how do you handle this situation? And he said, you know, we assess her and see if what we can do from our standpoint. Um, and if there was anything that she had done, um, like to someone or if she had attacked anyone. And it seemed like everything was in order from that standpoint. And they had called EMS and to get her to come um, and for her to be taken to the hospital to get evaluated. And I said, you know, why don't you just take her in the cop car? You have the police vehicle here. Why don't you just put her in the back and take her to the hospital? And he said, you know, all of our windows are glass and she would kick through the window instantly of being in the car. And that was interesting because I'd never even thought about that. Um, and then the EMS showed up and they kind of, you know, the police officers helped her. And it was really interesting too, because um, a TTC employee who actually called in that the woman was screaming and seemed to have um, mental health issues he was helping as well. So you had the TTC officer, um, you had the four police officers and the two paramedics show up and everyone was talking to the woman and got her on the stretcher and then, you know, got her to the hospital and they assessed it. And when I asked Barrera about that, um, I mean, mental health is such a big part of policing. And I think it's, it's not a gray area, but I think in that moment they knew that the paramedics were more equipped to deal with her and getting her to the hospital and getting her checked out to be able to assess it. You also mentioned the officers themselves being subject to harassment. Um, and I mean, one of the clear ways of seeing that is, you know, the officer who was injured earlier in a, you know, a fight with somebody who they were trying to arrest. Mm -hmm. uh, did they talk about that at all with you? Um, like how they deal with it or? Just in general, you know. Yeah, um... I think, like, one of the things that stands out to me was Sergeant Barrera said when he first started on the job, it was really hard to not take these things personally. You know, whether it was someone swearing and yelling at him or getting in an altercation with him. And he said, you know, over his years of working as a Toronto police officer and dealing with that, dealing with people calling him a pig or yelling at him um, or swearing and, you know, getting in these altercations, he said to me that you realize that these people are attacking their uniform. They're attacking what police they think stand for. And he said, you know, over time you learn that and it's, it's difficult, he said, but the more you're on the job, you realize that they're attacking the job, not you. And he did mention that, you know, a lot of the police officers deal with this differently, but that for him was one of the most difficult things that he had to learn. And, he, and I think that just comes with time for a lot of them. Last question. Mm -hmm. And then you're free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> would you rather be a cop 
or a crime reporter? Ooh. You know what? This is funny. So I said, <laughs> I actually said to Pereira, because there was a couple incidents where I was like, oh, maybe he's down this side. And then we found him. And he was like, how did you know that? And one thing stands out, actually, the Hells Angel gun call. Um, when they searched the guy, he didn't have his wallet on him. And he had just left a club. And I said, wait, if he doesn't have his wallet on him and he just left a club downtown Toronto on a Wednesday, he threw it somewhere. And if he's claiming to have a gun, he probably threw the gun with his wallet. And so Barrera had said a couple of things. He's like, oh, maybe you should have been a police officer. And I was like, there is no way I could do the things that they do. I think the most shocking thing that I learned through all of this was that they are having to have these altercations or fights with people every single day. And they're having to deal with people on their worst days every single day. And they're having to get in either verbal fights or physical fights with complete strangers. And to me, there's no way, like I've never even been in an altercation or a fight with someone and I don't know emotionally how I would handle that or how you could be prepared to deal with that every single day on the job. You know, going in every single day to work, essentially fighting complete strangers, whether verbally or physically, um, and always having to show up to these things where you want so badly to help this person and you, you might not be able to, or you get called to something that you don't even want to be a part of, but you have to go because it's your job. And people are yelling at you and people are wanting, like talking down to you, but someone else has called you and you have to go there to do a job. As a crime reporter, I get to sit here and, you know, talk to people and there's difficult things about it or, you know, I have to read horrible stories or I have to um, look at things that, you know, aren't the greatest things to look at or hear. But I'm kind of behind the scenes. <laughs> there, every single day, the first responders are there every single day having to deal with these things first and foremost. And I think what they do is very unique. And I think a lot of people don't understand what goes into being a Toronto police officer. That was Alana Kelly, a writer for 680 News and City News, interviewed by our Colin Robertson. Check out the full story and footage from the police cruiser at 680news.com. Now, construction on the eastbound Gardner wrapped up this past week, four days and four months early. Our listeners and all of us here in the 680 News Traffic Centre rejoiced. Oddly enough, though, we've actually seen the DVP heavier since it cleared because there's no bottleneck before everyone gets on the northbound parkway. But that's not the issue we're talking about today. We need to know what's next. I hand the mic over to Daryl Dahmer and Kerry Brunskis, who cover the afternoon drive together and probably look at the Gardner Expressway more than anybody. In 1955, they started construction on the Gardner Expressway. It took nine years. In 1964, it was finished and it was open and named after a former mayor of the city of Toronto, Fred Gardner. A year after that, one of the biggest songs ever to come out of Motown by Martha and the Vandellas, Nowhere to Run. When I hear the song, I think of Motor City, Detroit, and Benny was on drums and the Punk Brothers were backing them up, and the music after the drums, you can hear Snow Chains, that was Jack Ashford. And why do I think of this? Well, Nowhere to Run is what we were faced with, with the construction on the Gardner Expressway for the last two years. With us today is Frank Claricio. And Frank, what's your title with the City of Toronto? I'm the Director of Design and Construction for Transportation Infrastructure within the Engineering and Construction Services Division. So let's distill this. Are you the guy that we came to really loathe for the last two years and now suddenly love? Uh, I would. Yes, I, I am. I would hope that uh, the loathing would be less and the loving would be more. 
Well, it was a big job. You were responsible for the rehabilitation of the Gardner Expressway. What happened? Why did we have to do it, and where do we go from here? Well, as you know, the, the Gardner has been deteriorating over a number of years, and the con- as we conducted a strategic rehabilitation or assessment of the Gardner Expressway, we found that the concrete deck has uh, reached the end of its service life, and in order to maintain the Gardner in a safe and serviceable condition, we would have to uh, implement a variety of rehabilitation uh I guess, actions. And one of those is the replacement of the concrete deck, which is part of the contract that uh, has just uh, uh, completed, been completed uh, with respect to the section between uh, Bathurst and Strawn. How did it go? It went uh, extremely well. Uh, not only were we able to complete uh, the deck replacement, uh, however, we were able to return the lanes into service well in advance of the anticipated completion date. Uh, uh, I guess it would be approximately four months and four days in advance of what the anticipated completion date was, which was sometime in October 2016. I know the saving of money is sometimes an intrinsic thing, but the mayor gave a a total for what it would cost extra. Uh, When I look at traffic, and I've been doing it for a number of years over the city, to me it's incalculable the amount of time that you have saved in terms of frustration, the number of collisions that you've eliminated by an early ending and so on. How did you or how were you first notified that the schedule was going to get stepped up? Well, we started communication with the contractor in the, in the sense that uh, we've just completed a strategic rehabilitation and it's a plan, and as part of that plan, we looked at the impacts from traffic congestion. And notably from that, we found that, you know, very conservative number, approximately $1 million per day for every uh, time or for every day that we occupied the Gardner Expressway. Could you explain what you meant by a $1 million a day? So what ends up happening is what we did is we basically estimated the the loss, so the the amount of time or the additional time for commuters that are stuck in traffic, and basically just looking at the traffic volume only on the Gardner, not even on the surrounding routes, the the parallel routes that are going to be impacted by the Gardner, but just on the Gardner, and that lost time multiplied by the various wages. Uh, or just a standard wage, would uh, calculate or would tabulate to uh, $1 million per day. So you figured having a lane blocked... A lane in each direction. Yeah, equated equated to a million dollars in lost A million dollars a day. And that does not even include the loss due to the uh, the economy with respect to to delivery trucks stuck in traffic and their their workload, uh, as well as it doesn't include the traffic impacts on the uh, parallel routes. So Lakeshore, for example. So once we, uh, once there's traffic congestion on the Gardner, there's also traffic congestion on parallel routes. Well, it doesn't even take into account the traffic congestion on those parallel routes. So it's a very conservative number. So it's a million dollars, but it could be substantially more. I was just going to ask, what other work uh, still needs to be done? Or is there still going to be so, overnight construction closures? So what ends up happening with regards to this contract and the deck replacement, the, the, there's work that needs to be undertaken or that needs to be uh, completed underneath the gardener which is those piers and columns, so they have to be uh, refaced with respect to, you know, there's some chipping and there's some areas where there's some delamination, so they need to fix that, as well as there's some drainage modifications underneath the gardener. Is that going to, sorry, is that going to affect the lakeshore? 
No, no. So there's going to be no impact to Lakeshore, or there's going to be no impact to um, to the lanes above on, on the Gardner. That's why we made sure that we opened up the lanes as quickly as possible. The other work can be undertaken without any traffic impact. I uh, hadn't met Frank before, so I Googled him. There's a photo of him, Getty Images, and it's a great one. He's standing under the Gardner Expressway looking up, wearing a hard hat. And I broke up laughing, and I thought, well, with all the concrete that's fallen, that's very timely, and so on and so forth. So uh, what have you done underneath the Gardner uh, itself so that people on the lakeshore don't have to be concerned? So we've so there's another contract that's uh, currently underway, which is the interim rehabilitation concrete uh uh, contract where we have uh, uh, in, investigated all the areas, chipped any loose concrete uh, off in a safe manner, and have undertaken to patch those areas. So we are currently uh, every twice a year we inspect the gardener for any loose or uh, delaminated areas. We try to chip those areas to remove any uh, debris that may create a, a safety concern, and then we undertake some uh, patching repairs. So we are undertaking that currently, especially in the eastern portion of the Gardner between uh, the Don uh, Don Valley Parkway and uh, and Jarvis. Hold on a second here. Now my eyes are just almost beginning to roll into the back of my head. You've just finished rehabilitation. Are you telling me you've got a major project looming on the horizon again? Yes, we've only finished. So the the Gardner rehabilitation was for only for an 820 meter stretch of the Gardner of the elevated portion. There's approximately 2.4 kilometers of the elevated portion that require rehabilitation. Uh, the eastern portion, for example, that uh, council just approved the hybrid option for, uh, for the alignment. So we have to incorporate that as well as the, ex- uh, the existing or the remaining portion of the elevated uh, section of the gardener, as well as we have to rehabilitate uh, the various 32 structures that are at the at grade section, which is the western portion of the gardener. There's 32 bridges and crossings that need to be rehabilitated, as well as the reconstruction. So there's a substantive amount of work that needs to be undertaken. And what we're trying to do is being very strategic in implementing that so that we minimize traffic disruption to a shorter period and time frame. Frank, my eyes now have rolled into the back of my head with a specter of another <laughs> another batch of construction on the Gardner Expressway. I'm ready to lay on the floor with my hands and feet in the air. How is this going to be painless, or is it going to be the same thing again? Well, what we're trying to do, understand we have to maintain the Gardner in a safe and serviceable condition. We can't let it deteriorate to the point where we have to close the gardener. So to that and to that uh, effort, we need to make sure that we've un- conduct the necessary rehabilitation of the various components of the gardener. And what we are doing is we're investigating all the, the, the best delivery options available within the industry. And what we've landed on is uh, a P3 approach that allows us to accelerate the work and minimize traffic congestion as well as impact as much as possible. Frank, I'm sure we're going to revisit the subject with you again in the future. I really, really want to thank you very much for uh, coming on with us today. Carrie? Absolutely. Thank you. That was great. Great. You're welcome. Say goodnight to the uh, nice man. (laughs) (laughs) Good night.
Thanks, Frank. Take care. <laughs> Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks a lot to you for listening and to all my contributors and guests this week. A reminder that we'd love your feedback for future episodes. You can send your comments or story ideas directly to me at John Mace 680 news on Twitter, or you can reach the listener line, 416-872-6800. Your recorded comments could make it on to future episodes. I'm John Mace, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.